welcome to Tea and Strumpets, a Regency Romance Review. I'm Zoe. And I'm Kelsey. And today we do have a very special guest for you guys, and you guys are really going to enjoy the conversation that we had with her because, uh, well, it's it's pretty awesome. Um, it's fairly amazing, actually. <laughs> Yes, but we're going to get into that a little bit later. She's not joining us for the synopsis, but we've got to recap episode two, don't we? Yes, we do need to recap episode two. So episode two is Shock and Delight, and it starts with us learning about Simon's past. His mother died in childbirth, and his father is so ecstatic at the birth of a son that he completely ignores his dying wife. His dad then proves himself a villain by completely denouncing Simon when he finds that he has a stutter. In fact, he even refers to Simon as dead to his peers because he'd rather have no son than one that was not perfect. Enter Lady Danbury, who is good friends with Simon's mother, and gives us one of the best speeches we've ever heard, cementing herself in our hearts as one of the best Bridgerton characters. Sorry, that was personal opinion. Fight me, though. (laughs) Which all leads us to Simon and his pledge never to marry, because he has vowed on his father's deathbed that he will not continue the line of a man who valued the Hastings title more than his own son. Now we get back to Daphne, who is getting more anxious about her marriage prospects due to her brother's interference. And now Anthony has announced that he's promised her hand to Nigel Beerbrook, who is really turning out to be a dastardly villain. Yes. Beerbrook doubles down on his suit with Daphne and really makes it known that marriage to him would be awful. He's possessive and really is not a uh, lover of women's rights in any way, shape, or form. And Anthony realizes too late the repercussions of his high-handedness. Neither Simon nor Anthony, both rich, powerful men used to getting their way, aren't prepared to handle a sneaky manipulator like Beerbrook. So it is up to Lady Bridgerton who is not so keen to see Daphne married off now that there is a duke in line for her hand to save the day. She announces that they will do what women do best, talk. And they start a gossip smear campaign that bears fruit, and Daphne is saved from a truly disastrous marriage. We also find out that Marina is in London because she is pregnant and in need of a quick marriage or face ruin. Penelope has found out about the pregnancy and tells Eloise about that and the predicament of women who do not have a husband. This solidifies Eloise's terror of marriage, seeing it as the end of all her personal ambitions. There is a scene where she and Daphne recall Violet's screams and the fear that they would lose their mother just months after their father dies during their sister Hyacinth's birth. Her obsession about Penelope's pregnant maid, aka Marina, is less about gossip mongering and more about ensuring she herself does not catch pregnancy. Oh, Eloise. But it isn't Eloise's fault. They Women don't knew nothing. Know. They didn't know anything. And this is a great storyline, I thought, to really to really kind of Eloise is the audience's surrogate, right? Understanding mm-hmm. that women of this time do not understand how babies are made, that they 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 really are ignorant. And this helps us set up for something that comes later, but we're not talking spoilers yet. So if you've only seen episode two, uh, you don't know what I'm talking about. And if you have seen later, you sure do know what I'm talking about. Because later, <laughs> you know, we 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 just We have to know that this is the way it is in this world. And this is Mm -hmm. pretty actually true to history. Women in this time period, it was really suppressed sexuality. 
Yes. Yes. I mean, even more so later on. Yes. Um, but yeah, the idea of sexuality and relationships between men and women were very like kept from the young debutantes as they came up. And so often they really had no clue what was in their future. Yeah. So I think that this is this was so great, though. I have to comment on the women, though, doing what they do best, right? Oh, I loved that line. She's like, we will do what we do best. Talk. And I was like, oh, Lady Bridgerton. So good. And it it just made me feel like it it so felt like all of our Regency romance novels. Like there are so many scenes like that in books where, you know, it, it, women didn't have all the powers that they have today. Um, and so or didn't have all of the opportunities that they had today. And so there's the author taking advantage of what the woman does have and mm-hmm. making like the best of it. And of course, you know, women talking and women gossiping is like definitely looked down upon. And yet here we are with Lady Bridgerton taking it as taking up her sword, you know, and, yes. and, and saying kind of, you all think we're just gossiping, but really we're doing something that you can't do. Yes. I mean, and the men maybe ran society, but it is their women folk that really set the tone for how things functioned. Because if it wasn't for them, they'd have nothing. And, you know, if you guys are more interested in hearing a little bit more about kind of the women who were, who did have a voice during this time period, we actually have an interview with B. Koch, and she talked about her book, Mad and Bad Real Heroines of the Regency. And we got into a discussion about the patronesses of Almax. And mm-hmm. that kind of is similar to to a little bit what we're talking about. They don't talk about Almax in um, Bridgerton, the books or the series, which is totally fine. But I think um, I think there's some interesting stuff in there. So you can check out our episode on that. But I really liked this episode. I this is the one episode of all the episodes I didn't write any notes for because I got swept up in the first five minutes and I was just like, I just want to indulge. Like, I just want to watch this. Well, and it was really so powerful because um, in the books, you know, Simon's story is the prologue, which obviously Mm -hmm. wasn't going to work for the show because we have to know what the heck we're watching. Mm -hmm. But I like that they did tell you in episode two, they immediately got to it. Mm-hmm. And you didn't have to wonder what Simon's deal was. You did understand his past. And also you understood the place that Lady Danbury had in his life and just like why he even cares about her because she's not a blood relation in any way, shape or form. But, you know, the impact that she had on his life, as well as just everybody else's lives a little bit more in that mm-hmm. sense of the turmoil women faced, but then also how they could deal with it. And, you know, there really was brothers being high handed and being like, whoop, nope, you got to marry that guy now. And it's like, excuse you. No. <laughs> yeah. And Simon's stuff, his his backstory was was really heartbreaking. They did a really good job mm-hmm. of of breaking my heart, seeing little Simon in those different stages. Oh, gosh. And the actor was so cute. <laughs> um, but yeah, I thought that they they did it so well. My husband, of course, did laugh a little bit about it. And my sister, I remember she texted me and she was like, really? He, you know, refuses to carry on the line because 
his dad was an asshole. And I was like, well, yes, he's traumatized by it. He's traumatized by it for sure. And I think I think the book does maybe a little bit better job of making it not just be about Simon. It's about also his mother. Like his mother mm-hmm. died to have him. And then his father like rejected him and because he wasn't the epitome of what he needed. And so there's more trauma there than mm-hmm. like just maybe we see on screen, right? Yeah, I think that one of the big things is like Simon truly – like there was much more explosion when Simon would try to talk and like his dad was like – you know, mm-hmm. in the book there was a little bit more harshness to it because he's like egging Simon on to which would frustrate him and he'd get more stuttery. And then also the idea of like him being dead. You know, you know, yeah. Lady Danbury kind of was like, oh, so you're not dead after all. Yeah. That Simon's, was kind of like Simon's a blank- dad in the books. That's true. He he said that Simon was dead. He had told everybody that Simon was dead. Mm-hmm. And, and Simon really heard about him. And, yeah. And so that was really, yeah. So there's a bit more trauma to it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So definitely, though, like an episode that swept me away. Like I was mm-hmm. really entranced. And I think this episode was obviously I loved episode one. We already talked all about it. But like yeah. this was the episode where I was like, I'm in. <laughs> I'm so For sure. in. And I like that we really got to see Eloise really came into her own in this in this episode. You yeah. Know, Eloise, like you found who out who Eloise was. I would say, too, that what's interesting is this episode is probably the episode for, like, the most percentage of time that, like, deviates from the book. Because, Mm -hmm. yes, you get Simon's backstory, but then you get all the stuff about Daphne and Nigel, which is Is in the book, but not in the book. No, it's not in the book. He has a crush on her, basically, in the book. And he's a blundering idiot in the book. But – They've used him as a villain here, which I think works so well for the it TV show. It's it like, absolutely does. It's so the right decision. I mean, it makes me laugh just because, like, I, I feel like, you know, I know I know a different Nigel. And he's mm-hmm. just not this, you know, he's not able to pull off a plan yeah. like this. Or but this like, was also this. giving us a little bit more background on, like, where Anthony is, you know, because he mm-hmm. has this conversation with his mother about, like, needing to step up and meet his yes. demands. You know, but they also had to fill us more in on Marina's store- plot line, which is not in the book. So there was a lot of time spent on that as well. Yeah. and 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 Eloise... What we're getting from her is an incredibly wonderful and perfect characterization that's almost more developed than the books. And mm-hmm. I'm so glad for that because, like, oh, she's amazing and I love her so much. She um, is. And I feel like they took all of the best parts of Eloise and, like, exemplified them um, and kind of took her to almost to her full potential, which obviously in her own book, I feel like we get a really great Eloise, but – Mm-hmm. You know, we we only get just little hints and snippets of that uh, in the other books. So it was so great to see her come alive like that. Absolutely. Well, it's really hard to talk about just this one episode and not talk about the whole series because parting the curtain here, this is the final episode we're recording. <laughs> yes, it is. However, that being said, we had an amazing guest who's going to talk us through all the music through Bridgerton. And it was just astounding. Like, I was sitting there just like wrapped 
with attention as she was explaining it all to us. And I was like, "Uh uh-huh, tell me more, tell me more. I had to remember that this was a podcast and me nodding along wasn't really going to come through (laughs) the recording. (laughs) Yes, there was a lot of smiling and nodding because it was so fascinating. And I can't wait to share that with you all. But before we do that, shall we adjourn to the parlor? We shall. So today in the parlor, we're keeping it short and sweet, but we do have an ask for you. If you like what you're hearing, we would be honored if you'd leave us a review. Reviews on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever else you can review us really help other listeners find us. And of course, you can also tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways that I've discovered podcasts, and your recommendation is a great honor. And if a review is a little bit more effort than you want to put in, you can also just click that five star (laughs) and that also helps us out a lot. Yes. And if you'd like to interact with our recap on social media, be sure to use the hashtag BeMyBridgerton, B-E-E, My Bridgerton. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at T as in Tom and as Nancy Strumpets on Facebook slash TN Strumpets or on YouTube by searching our name. To get in touch with us about this or any other episode, you can contact us via our email, which is romancepod at gmail.com. And if you'd really like to be in the know, of course, you can sign up for email notifications on our website. And if you do subscribe, you are going to be the first to know what we're reading each month. Uh, Plus, you'll get all sorts of extras, including exclusive content from each of the authors who join us for interviews on the podcast. And again, our website is romancepod.com. And there you can find all sorts of cool stuff. So take a look. So today we are joined by composer Christy Carew. So thank you, Christy, so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. And do you want to tell our listeners just a little bit more about you and what you do? Sure. So I live in Los Angeles, and for the past 15 years, I've been working as a composer for film and TV, multimedia, all kinds of stuff, and also for the concert music world. Um, My function in my day job is I work for what's called a production music catalog. So when you're watching a a movie or a TV series, there's the score that a composer is hired to write that is scoring all the action and all the narrative. And then there are tons of moments where there is what's called diegetic music needed. So, for example, it's a movie about two women that run a podcast and they're talking to someone. (laughs) And then through the window, some very loud music from a food truck starts happening and you need like loud rock music or whatever. So music supervisors who work on all these projects, they then need to reach out to production music catalogs to find all kinds of music that they're using in this way. This runs from a scene at an art gallery where there's a classical string quartet playing. It runs everything you can think of where the composer of the project doesn't have the time to sit down and write or doesn't write in that style, doesn't have a rock band in the garage. Um, Other examples are 
a project, whether it's a trailer or an ad or a movie, needing a commercial song from a commercial artist, but the project not having the budget to license that particular song by that huge artist. So production music catalogs really fill the need by creating really quality music in those styles that are then licensable on those type of budgets. So my function is also um, being a music director and then being an in-house composer in the sense that there are opportunities that come up where the composer on the show or the movie is very busy and they need some custom things put together. That's where I come in and other people who fulfill the same function at other companies. And then freelance, I have a whole career <laughs> where I'm composing as the main composer on indie film and all kinds of other projects. A lot of podcast themes, I really enjoy doing that. Um, yeah. And so that's kind of where I fit into the whole thing. And then a couple of years ago, I'm like a very big Star Wars John Williams fan. And yeah. a couple of years ago, I started getting more involved in the side of the fandom that is analyzing and talking about music. And I started a regular segment with my friend on her podcast and I started a blog and I've been a fan of Star Wars my whole life, but I had just never entered that space. And so the more I started going on podcasts and talking about film and TV music, the more I realized that I just really love it. And I love um, being able to talk about these things and describe to people who might not necessarily have a lot of musical knowledge, but just love music and love film and TV music, to explain to them why a score works, why it's so good. And I think that Bridgerton is so special because of who they chose and what they chose to do. And I think it really elevates the genre. I'm really excited to dig into all that with you because I, I definitely, I don't want to give anything away. So anyhow, <laughs> all of that is really fascinating. And I'm so excited that you agreed to come on with us. And that's the next thing that I usually go into, which is the reason we invited you. And you kind of said that, you know, I, I basically I, I reached out on Twitter looking for someone who had a musical background and who would come and discuss the, uh, the score of Bridgerton with us. And I don't think we could have found a better person. So well, we are so well, grateful. Chris himself. And okay. I did, I do know, um, I kind of tangentially know him. My best friend um, works with him and conducts a lot of his school and does orchestration with him. Um, so I was going to try to reach out and, and get some juicy tidbits for you, but his Chris's schedule at the moment, no. I mean, obviously he's just, he is he's really, he was, he's exploding and he's really um, just starting to do, a, he's doing a lot of press for a lot of different things. So um, I wasn't able to make yeah. that happen, but um, well. he's such a, <laughs> such an amazingly talented person, such a good person. Um, so it's really, really great that the, this is who they chose to do this and that we got this amazing pro product from it. That's awesome. Well, Christy, what is your relationship to the Bridgerton series? I'm just a diehard lover of period piece romances. Um, just since I was a kid and started reading Jane Austen, I live for it. I live for period dramas, like anything, the costumes, the setting, the romances, the misunderstandings, Kira Knightley, everything. I just <laughs> drink it up. And when I'm reading, I'm, I read a lot of romance, but I tend to read it more in like the fantasy genre. So for mm -hmm. example, Sarah J. Moss is my favorite Ooh. writer in that genre. And I just 
devoured everything she's ever read and I've kind of wrote and I've kind of branched out from there. So in, I haven't read the novels yet, but one of my colleagues read them and recommended them to me. And so they're on my Goodreads shelf for the very next thing that I delve into. Wonderful. Well, we'll have to chat once you've read those books. Uh, yeah, I'm excited because there's eight, right? Yeah, there's, there's like eight whole... books. They're good. A book yeah. per sibling. It's quite fun. I love it. Yes. Love it. And so having not read the books, just based on your viewing of the show, do you have a favorite character? Yes. I, I like the... Um, middle brother the artistic one ah benedict uh, who's going benedict i like benedict the best um you know going to all of the fancy art parties and exploring and and just being kind of like it's not that he doesn't know his purpose in the world but he's still trying to figure it out and i really would love to see how that develops as we also want to see how it develops benedict is a really fun character in the book but he's not as vibrant per se like in the mm-hmm. books and so, like, when we saw him on film, we were like, oh, my gosh, Benedict. Like, yeah, can we get really more great. of him? Like, whatever yeah. he's doing, we want in. <laughs> he has such great, he has such a great manner to him and his charisma and just his chemistry with the other members of the cast. Like, he was, besides Simon and Daphne and, and their relationship really being the heart of it that I really fell in love with, he was the other part that I just couldn't get enough of. And Lady Danbury. Oh. Lady Danbury is fierce. You can't help but love her. Um, I try to channel her. I try to take her spirit and her yes, amazing. Exactly. Exactly. People have been saying that Eloise is their spirit animal. And I'm like, no, for me, it's Lady Danbury. Yes. <laughs> Eloise is fantastic. She's amazing. I really like that character too. Yeah. Yes. Excellent. Okay. So now that we know where we're at with the series and who our favorites are, let's dig a little bit deeper into this score and you know, the background of this music phenomenon that is, because I mean, we know that Bridgerton has been getting a lot of good feedback, not just because of the beautiful costumes and the great acting, but also the music. People have been blown away by it. Yep. It's really special. And um, to give you a little bit of background on Chris, he, uh, something of like a a prodigy, a jazz pianist, and kind of came up in Mm -hmm. that world. And won this very famous um, jazz piano competition and got a record deal like at a young age. Um, There's actually a short documentary um, coming out about him and his grandfather that Ava DuVernay is producing. So this for everybody who loved his music on Bridgerton, this will be an amazing treat to watch that documentary come out. Um, And so he has just gotten accolade after accolade in his career and brought like a really unique voice to his film scoring that's very... Like one of the things that's the hardest thing to do in this career is find your voice and who you are and your style. Mm -hmm. Because so often we'll get a project and there's already been what's called a temp score cut into the project. So in order to edit it, the probably the music editor or sometimes the regular editor has just taken pieces that they think will work and that the director likes and that help the energy and momentum of the scene or capture the emotion the right way. And it's already been edited in. So by the time the composer gets it, they we may have been involved early and read the script, but by the first time we're actually watching the entire final cut of this project Mm -hmm. quite often there's already a temp score in there that the director has fallen in love with and that you need to kind of approach Uh, with your music mm -hmm. so quite often because you are writing music that is influenced by what has already been there and because there's so many composers that have defined an entire generation like john williams is my favorite Mm -hmm. and i just 
love him so much and I've studied him and orchestrated and done everything I can to figure out how he does it and why he does it. But you can't have a successful career as a copy of another composer that you love. You can ingest all of that and absorb it and learn from it. But at some point, you still have to strike out and figure out who you are and what you want to say as a composer. And I think something that's really lovely about Chris, when you look at the entire body of his work, is that every time he does that. Um, another example of projects he's worked on is um, the Green Book, which was Academy mm-hmm. Award winning. Um, he did When They See Us, the Ava DuVernay produced series of, about the, the Central Park case. He's definitely got a wide array of projects and styles that he works on, but there is that unique thread and that voice coming through. Um, a couple, he's won a daytime Emmy, and he was also a Sundance Film Music Lab Fellow, which is a program that I have also done. Um, they only accept, in his year, they only accepted six people. In my year, they accepted 10 people worldwide. Oh, wow. And what it is, is a two-week program up at Skywalker Ranch where you uh, work with mentors and get to just study film music and learn about it, and then you are paired with an indie film director and you work on scenes from their film and it's really created in this very magical atmosphere of being up at the ranch. So um, Chris has been through that program and he's won tons of different awards and just, he was an excellent choice for this project. So the way that they approached it though, um, there's an article, I will send you all of my links and all of my research that I did before this episode. So if you want to link it, um, so people can, we will absolutely link it. Okay. (laughs) There's a really great article in variety, um, where Chris explains that as they were approaching it, you know, there's been a ton of scores for period pieces. How can this be something fresh? How can this be something different? Because obviously the show isn't just your standard period piece. Not only is it pushing boundaries um, with some of the themes and some of what's captured on camera, it's pushing boundaries with the score having the, um, or with the music having the string quartets playing pop songs, Mm -hmm. having kind of these modern themes injected into it. So he said that in the beginning, they had a little bit of trial and error. The showrunner, uh, Chris Van Dusen, who's obviously a protege of Shonda Rhimes and is super experienced with TV, um, he was super open to them trying different things. So one of the things that they tried was taking a very modern approach while still using traditional instruments. And I would have loved to hear what that would have sounded like. <laughs> that was one of the things that they ended up not going for. He also did something where they had orchestral elements that made them sound like they were sampled and used as like a hip hop or pop producer would. Okay. Also sounds really Uh cool. Um, They tried that for a couple of the scenes and then he reveals in this article that it wasn't really working. Um, So then he went the opposite direction and went super traditional classical, which started to feel like it was more in the right direction. But he says that for the showrunner, that felt a little stuffy and a little old. It didn't match with like the modern freshness that they were trying to take. So there's a composer, Maurice Ravel, a French composer who is one of he fits into what you would call like the impressionist movement of music where he was really starting to push the harmonies that he was using and getting really creative with these types of chords and melodies and he basically was coming into his full flower of his art like in the early 1900s so that's obviously much later than when Bridgerton 
came from. But the showrunner really loved these Ravel pieces. And Ravel actually also, interesting enough, had jazz as an influence in his later work. And of course, Chris comes from a jazz background. So the showrunner had fallen in love with Ravel and these pieces. And so that was kind of like the key that clicked into place for them. Mm -hmm. Once they had that as an inspiration, then that kind of opened it up. And he says... It was classical, but with a slightly modern approach and still romantic. That approach made sense to me because we are following the younger generation of this period, represent, representative of the future, and everything else grew from there. I love all of that, and I love that they yeah. they looked for the other influence, and I love that you said it was. I liked the idea of like that musical music impressionism in that sense, as you say, yeah. it's like. Cause you do, I can, I can visualize it. Cause when I think of impressionists, you know, I think of the impressionist painters mm -hmm. and exactly very, like, you know, classic in a sense of what they're depicting, but this like fresh, soft, romantic take that, exactly. you, you know, so I can totally visualize, you know, that yep. process, despite my is, lack of music knowledge. <laughs> he's a, you know, a French contemporary of those painters mm -hmm. and the same sort of like milieu of art. Um, so I really, really love Ravel's music. He definitely, when you look at his work, and especially I grew up playing his piano music, I'm a pianist, first of all, um, mm -hmm. what he was doing at the time he was doing it, he was very ahead of what was coming next in art and music. And he was doing things very early and using those jazz inspired harmonies that um, he was doing that kind of before anybody else was and mm -hmm. kind of showing what was, what was to come and telling the future. So I feel like I've, I'm, I'm not sure if it's the same Ravel, but I've definitely played some Ravel pieces when I was yeah. in, you know, orchestra. Um, is he, am I totally misremembering? Is he Bolero or is this a yes. different Ravel? Okay. Yes. I love, oh my gosh, I love a Bolero. Yeah. That's, that's super interesting and cool. I'm so glad you, you told us the story of how they, they got to there because I, I find that so fascinating, all of the different, you know, the trial and error and the way that, yeah. you know, you just have to find what fits. I mean, even for a, something as simple as, you know, picking our theme for our podcast, mm -hmm. I went through a lot of music and, you know, tried to find, I had inspiration pieces and I tried to find things that to me did the same mood. And then yep. the two of us, you know, it's, it's, it's a process. We it takes a while same. just where we like because I was like well let's look let's listen to some like harpsichord music you know because like yep. that's very period it's like okay like what does that sound like is that the right fit you know exactly <laughs> and then imagine that for multiple cues for every episode across a whole season and then it's scoring sometimes you have a month sometimes you have two weeks sometimes you have one week tv schedules are notoriously very punishing uh -huh. in their in their time and he mentioned in another interview that uh time started to get tight at the end and also this was a score that was recorded with the new challenges of the pandemic and mm -hmm. covid and how are we going to do this and his team i'm sure they went through a lot of extra steps because it happened in this time period and oh yeah listening to it i made you guys a playlist um i'll also send you that that has my favorites from the score and i'll put the ravel pieces on there too um but the just the production of the score it's so crisp it's so well mixed it's just like as soon as you turn it on actually the first piece in the entire score is one of my favorites, just because it does immediately, it starts and you get a feel of the characters and the show mm -hmm. and the setting. 
and the anticipation right away. It's one of the best opening tracks of a score that I can think of. So. Well, excellent. I mean, I know we were definitely very intrigued by it, but I know exactly what you're talking about, where you open in and you get that music, that first set. And I was like, I'm ready. Yep. Show it to yeah, me. Yeah, it's, it's very, it feels like you're racing off into the future uh-huh. and something really specialist coming and there's a grandness that's another thing I really like about the score is the contrast between feeling so epic and feeling so big and then he brings it down into these beautifully intimate pieces um, that just are the when it's two characters alone in a scene together but never loses the thread of the entire score and the themes it's a very thematic score it's very theme focused mm-hmm. um, and so that is another thing um, that he mentions in a lot of these articles when you're hearing Daphne's theme in this scene uh, where they're dancing at Somerset and as they're looking at each other and there's these big swells and there's drums that are happening that accentuate the fireworks and you're hearing her theme and then you're hearing a counter melody and it's not his theme it's not their theme together it's another melody that's starting to hint at their theme together like uh, he went mad, he went like really deep uh-huh. in and created counter melodies that even just start to suggest. And then over the course of the season, it develops. He talks specifically about their theme. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, it's mysterious. It's more longing. It's a little darker, actually. By the middle of the season, it kind of starts to deconstruct and feel ambivalent as she discovers the truth. It mm-hmm. starts to feel kind of ambiguous, unsettled. Then towards the end, it kind of does a turn and it's more triumphant. It's more optimistic. And in the very last scene, it's one of the only times that you've heard the theme being bright and happy. It harkens back to the episode one. So it kind of, the whole theme goes full circle along with their relationship. And that's really difficult to do. Mm-hmm. He's created themes that are just a short amount of notes, four to five notes, very classic way of approaching it. Um, but what he's able to do, they're earworms, they get stuck in your head, they're very powerful, they remind you. But I was talking to a friend earlier today who also watched it and loved the series. And she said to her, the mark of a very successful film or TV score is when it just, she didn't, it, she almost didn't notice it. Not that she didn't hear it and think it was beautiful, but it just accentuated the story mm-hmm. so well. And had just imper- in, like sank into the story and into mm-hmm. your experience of it. And that was it, Bridgerton for her. Yeah. Well, that makes sense because they say like, you know, uh, the key to makeup isn't necessarily like you can be outlandish and see it. But like the key to good makeup is really just to accentuate your features. Like it shouldn't yeah. look like you're wearing much at all. It's just supposed to accentuate your features. So if you hear yeah. this and I, I would say that because talking to you like when I was watching it. I was listening to it and I loved the music and I loved the swells and the this. Like, and I, I know that scene you're talking about at Somerset where they're like twirling yeah. around and I, yeah. I was getting chills when you were talking about it. But then when you say how it changed and kind of went around full circle, now I'm like, okay, I need to watch it again and just listen to the music. Exactly. Like pinpointing their different themes and seeing how it evolves. Um, that's It's the type of series where you kind of need to watch it multiple times Mm -hmm. because there's so many intricacies like that, not just with the music, but with the acting and with the the costumes and Mm -hmm. with the settings and everything. Like I, I really want to watch the entire thing again now that, because the first time I watched it, I was like kind of rushing a little Mm -hmm. bit because I, I wanted to know, first of all, who, <laughs> who she was. But then I also, um, another character that I'm very partial to is Penelope. And so I really wanted to know, like, does she get a happy ending? Like, is, she, is what's going to happen here? Like, I, I was kind of like 
wanted to know not just the resolution between Daphne and Simon, but I wanted to know what happens mm-hmm. to her too. So I'm going to have a very leisurely rewatch, yeah. I think. No, for sure. But we've talked about that. I love that he continued it with everything about this show is just so intentional. You've mentioned yeah. that like Daphne had a bit of a theme. Simon had a bit of a thing. They, their music comes together and it, they have their own like, you know, crescendo essentially at the end of them yeah. being together verse. And we even notice that like in the costumes, like, you know, yep. Eloise has a very signature style. Daphne has a very signature color. You know, yep. poor Penelope is always in yellow. Poor thing. Yeah, always, um, and she doesn't want to be. I know. Um, <laughs> um, but it's, you know, they were so intentional with, like, their decisions for all the characters as far as, like, we're going to tell a story with these colors. You know, that's yep. this person's wardrobe. And Absolutely. we really we noticed that right away and we found that very intentional. And then I love that even the music became so intentional for the story yeah. and it wasn't just like he approached it that yeah. way. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So I was going to say that I um, was definitely one of those people that like your friend where the score kind of blended in for me and hearing all the things um, that you're sharing with us. I'm so excited to like really focus on that during my rewatch. I think for totally. me, it was just like you know, same thing. The first time you see it, you're like, well, well, how are they going to do it? Even as someone who knows the the score or not the score, the books, I'm just like, OK, well, how are they going to do it? How is this going to yeah. play out? I'm so thrilled to see this. So one thing I did want to talk a little bit more deeply about was the vitamin string quartet choice um, because I had the captions on. And so the moment it started playing, then I was like, oh, I totally get this. They're using vitamin string quartet and, you know, picking modern songs. Now, I'll be honest, it didn't work for me. But I had my vitamin string quartet, period. We're <laughs> into vitamin string quartet. Right. You had your Yeah. And so, you know, now that I've come around to think about it, it didn't, it, like I said, it didn't work for me, but I think it was an extremely smart decision. I, it made sense to me. And so many people really loved it, hadn't had their vitamin string quartet, period. Okay. And so I, I just wanted to open the conversation about that and see what you think. Yeah. So um, apparently that was the choice of the music supervisor, Alex Patsavis. I've worked with Alex for many, many years. She's kind of a groundbreaking music supervisor who's done so many incredible shows and is known for being really creative in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it worked with the Taylor Swift song for sure. Mm-hmm. Like that entire scene was working for me. Yeah. The Ari- the Ariana Grande song, I think it was harder for me when it's a song that I'm not really that into. So I don't really care for her music that much. It's fine. But um, I do think that it was such a great sh- move in many ways to bring more people into this world and hear those music, hear that type of music that they listen to all day long, performed by a string quartet, performed in that type of setting. And Mm -hmm. I guarantee you that after somebody has their phase of listening to Vitamin String Quartet and listening to covers like that, it's a really great segue into, oh, well, maybe Spotify just recommended me this classical music and I'm going to listen to it. And it starts Uh to open them up into listening to classical music or even to contemporary composers who have done arrangements like that and then checking out their the rest of their work. So yeah, it kind of depended for me whether it worked or not, depending on the song. Mm -hmm. But I definitely think that it was a smart choice. And to bring in a lot of fans who might not even like 
period pieces, but love romances, love the, it's not enemies to lovers. It's more like right rivals to lovers or it's, it's, they're not quite enemies, but they're into that type of trope in books, in TV shows. Mm -hmm. So bringing them into a period piece using those two different things. And also the cast, I mean, I know everybody saw that trailer and, and saw the Duke and was like, I'm watching that. So there <laughs> yeah. were many, yeah. many things that that they did really well. And I also think that the trailer was really well done and the music that oh, they used. Oh, the trailer. Oh, my yeah. gosh. It was it was shivers up and down and made you want to watch it again and again. Are you I, kidding I me? Just remember even the teaser trailer. I can't even tell you yep. how many times I watched the teaser. I was like, oh. Where's the real one? Yeah, it started with those really cool cello arpeggios, and then it was oh. a, a cello with the bow hitting the instrument really hard, like yes. dun, 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 and it was just kind of like, Ooh. oh my god, I'm getting chills right now. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a former cello player, so like, it, you oh, know, nice. it, anytime there's a cello in it, I'm just like, yeah, cellos, go cellos. Yes. Um, <laughs> but um, but yeah, and 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 just to circle back into something that you said, which is um, enemies to lovers. Don't you worry, that's next season. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's the that's the main story of next season. So, uh, it's gonna be so good. Um, yeah. But yeah, so that's interesting. What you know, all of all of those things about Vitamin String Quartet. I, I found it to be just, especially with the love scenes where they put the Vitamin String Quartet behind it. It felt a little hollow to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like it 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 stood out instead of blended in and and almost sometimes took me out of the moment, but some, I think it's, it really depends on the viewer, you know, like some people like me, I get really affected by the music around me. And if I just am a little bit like "Eh," about it, then, then everything falls apart. But, (laughs) but, um, I saw some TikToks of people at, you know, and one was just absolutely brilliant that I saw, which is a girl like sitting on her couch, drinking wine and listening to Ariana Grande. And it's like first episode of Bridgerton. And then it says eighth episode of Bridgerton. She's like in a Regency dress, sipping tea, listening to Vitamin String Quartet, Ariana Grande. And so I was like, that was kind of, I think the moment where I was like, okay, like this to me makes total sense. This was a really smart decision for the show because it did exactly that. It got a lot of people in the door and got a lot of people talking. And that is great and wonderful and exciting. They knew what they were doing in so many ways. Like it, it, like we were saying, the intention, the intentionality of it Mm -hmm. Um, and hiring somebody like Chris, who is known for being so unique and so strong in his musical voice. Um, There's another interview that he gave. The jazz competition that I mentioned is the Thelonious Monk International Jazz Piano Competition, which takes place at um, Kennedy Center. And it said in the article that actually Aretha Franklin chose him as her favorite to win during the semifinals. So he did did win that and get a record deal from that. Um, So piano really is his instrument of choice. um, And it's really quite something. There's a lot of him um, playing jazz piano on YouTube that everybody can check out. Um, So he did make piano very central to the score. And, you know, several times where we see her playing, I also love when they bring her, like, bring the drama and the narrative of the scene into what she was playing. Uh I really loved all of that. And they did a fantastic job of actually having the hands look like it was playing the piece. Sometimes that's not accurate at oh, all. Yeah. And, <laughs> yep. you know, I don't even play these really, things and I can be like, that's not right. <laughs> yeah. and her, even her posture and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, 
One, one of the funniest things that I've done in my career was one day um, for a show, I had been asked to do a one-handed Bach piece. Like, we just need you to play the right hand of this little Bach piece, and um, then we'll be having it on camera. And I was like, okay. So I took my right hand, and I played like a little Bach invention just with one hand and sent it out. And they were like, great, perfect. Then when they were going to shoot the scene, they said, okay, well, actually, do you want to come on set and like be on camera for this? And I was like, cool. I've never done that before. Like, I'd love to go down to a TV set and <laughs> mm -hmm. see what it's like. Show up. And first of all, it was the left hand. It needed oh, to be <laughs> with the left. So I needed to go redo it. Secondly, it's not like they were going to shoot my hand. The character um, is an army vet and he has a prosthetic arm that's worth six figures and so his arm was going to be laid on top of my arm and I, I was going to move it it was taped so that my fingers would move but this is an extremely attractive man and I had to like <laughs> hug him I had to hug him and snake my arms underneath and like press against him so that they could shoot him from you know the top of the piano up and I'm just lurking behind him like this and moving the fingers and it was so heavy and then the they edited my arm out afterwards. So after I saw that, I've been very keen to to see how they do these things, how they work their magic to make it look like the the person is playing who really isn't. So Holy that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh my that was goodness. Fun. That was a fun experience. And there's so many different examples of how they make those things work. But yeah, I was really impressed. And I don't know, I haven't read too much about that actress, but even her posture, even the way that she moves, she seemed like a musician, like she had some experience with that. And she just sold that part of the performance really, really well, I think. That's so cool. I mean, I, I don't know so much about um, her specifically. I do know that like all the three guys that play the older Bridgerton brothers are all very musical. I don't know if they play yeah. musical instruments, but and they the, the sing. Sings. Yeah, he had such a great voice. Yeah. All three of them actually sing, and they have these videos of the three of them harmonizing. Oh, my goodness. I saw one of those the other day, and I was like, oh, <laughs> it's just melting. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of a shame that they weren't able to just make it a musical. Yeah. <laughs> Did you guys hear? You heard about the, the TikTok the, Bridgerton musical? Yes. I have I have seen, I have heard, you know, I haven't, I'll be honest, I haven't like looked into it if it's, if it's, is it a legitimate thing that's going to become like a, a legitimate Bridgerton empire well, or? The thing, the reason why it had gotten so much press and attention, um, this young pianist, Emily Bear, like mm -hmm. Bear as in Bear. Yeah. If you guys want to look her up, I'll also send you a link um, to some of her performances. I mean, she's super young. She's another prodigy, just somebody who right from the beginning, like, okay, this person is a genius. And so I, th I think she's like 18 or 19. She's super young still at this point, but um, she, you know, wants to do film music and she's already started doing it. And she has a really uh, awesome agent and she's kind of just already in that world. So, she, and she's performed for hundreds of thousands of people she's been on tour she's done all kinds of stuff so she is one of the people involved so it's for sure going to blow up and become a big thing she and her friend um yeah. have, i need i need to find the article about it but um in one of the film music facebook groups that i'm in uh her agent actually posted it like here's a great example of the way that young people and that generation are using TikTok and using other mostly TikTok. i mean TikTok is kind of taking yeah. over how they're using it to like, I want to create something. Here I have 
all the ability to create I have. It's so easy. I can reach this huge audience. And something like Bridgerton that is so beloved and that people, especially Gen Z, are really into. I mean, it's just super smart to um, have taken their genuine love of something and they're creating something new and it's already getting like a lot of attention. It's going to be really great. And it is really catchy. They have created yeah. some incredibly catchy, beautiful pieces, you know, yeah, that like really gets stuck in my head. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's so exciting to, you know, see art inspire more art. Like, yeah whatever the form and you've seen it so much with Bridgerton it's reached so many people but it's also resonated with so many people and that's yeah. why there are people out there creating music creating you know physical artwork or you know making little TikToks that's art too like i mean it's yeah. just it's just so exciting absolutely yeah i really love i love also that it is Netflix's most watched series oh. of all time Way to go, romance. I I really (laughs) hope that they start to to make more content like this. Like we want, especially right now, something doesn't have to be all sunshine and rainbows the whole way through for it to be like really uplifting and feel good. Like we see that with Bridgerton. They definitely go through dark times. They go through things that are difficult to deal with. There's very heavy themes addressed. But I'm not a fan of like grim, dark, gritty, Mm -hmm. ultra-realistic stuff all the time like Mm -hmm. i i will if when i'm in a specific mood i will seek that out and i will look for that but so many stories um that people were following and loving and getting a lot of enjoyment of took these kind of dark grim Mm -hmm. endings like in the past couple of years and i don't in a lot of these cases i don't feel like it was earned or made sense it's kind of like well we're just going to end it this way because it's more realistic. No, no, no. I, I'm happy for like romance to to follow how their romances are complicated in real life. And often they don't end well or have sad periods. But like I am 100% about wanting the warm, feel good, the way that Bridgerton ended, the way that obviously there's still so much more story to tell. Mm-hmm. But like give us more like people are hungry for this kind of content. They are hungry for things that have really strong romantic storylines and have everything. The happily ever after. Yeah. My freaking husband, all he wants to watch is like crime, murder, drug (laughs) dealing. He's like, no, but it's so realistic. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want to watch that. Like, I'm sorry. I don't want to. Like, I'm like, I'm really happy you enjoy this, but I don't get any enjoyment out of it. And so then when Bridgerton came on and he's like, asking me questions on like, you need to shoosh. This is my thing. There's eight episodes of my thing. Shoosh. Well, it's just like, you know, we all have to eat, but sometimes it's nice to have a slice of cake. And I feel like Bridgerton is that slice of cake. And like you said, you know, romance... Ha- this is what romance does. You know, it has the happily ever after. My husband asked me, he was like, well, are Simon and Daphne going to get together at the end? And I said, <laughs> I said, yes, honey, this is a romance. So yes, they end up together. Um, yeah. But they are going to have to fight for it. Mm-hmm. They're going to have to rise above. They're go- there's going to be some difficulty. But at the end of it, you're going to see that they have come through that together and they are now stronger because they they yeah. went through this. And that is, mm-hmm. that is why they're going to live happily ever after you know and that, and- that's always been the draw for me that's always been I'm not just reading it for for its own sake like I really love that it is realistic that love changes people it mm-hmm. is realistic that this is like a huge motivator for people to become better and how 
it's not necessarily that a, any one person has the ability to change the other person, but we have the ability to inspire them to want to do what they have to do to change. Mm-hmm. And that's a very, that's a theme in all of our lives. So Yeah, it sure is. If only we could all have learned more from, I know I had my own struggle with romances. Like I read <laughs> so many and then I had problems in my relationship because I just wasn't expressing my feelings well enough. And I was like, <laughs> man, I get so mad at characters when they just don't talk about their feelings. <laughs> Yeah, Yeah. Uh, if only they had had an honest conversation, right? If only they'd had an honest conversation. (laughs) Well, um, I would love to talk about this all year, but um, I think we have taken enough of all of our times, unfortunately, today. Christy, we are so thankful that you were able to join us and tell us Thank all you. these things that we didn't know. We're I'm so excited to get those links from you. We'll definitely link to all those in the awesome. show notes mm-hmm. for our listeners too. But if our listeners want to learn more about you or hear more from you, where can they find you? Um, my website is christycrew.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, Christy underscore Carew, and that's where I tend to post um, my blogs and other podcasts. For, for now, it's mostly talking about Star Wars. If you're a Star Wars fan, you're going to love to. I am starting to branch out into some other ones. Um, and then I also have Instagram, Christy Carew Music. And my blog is on Tumblr, which I don't know... Not too, not as many people are using Tumblr anymore, but I still love it. <laughs> and I actually hear about tons of books that I'm reading and, and romance novels and all the kinds of stuff that I really like to get into. I usually hear about it first on Tumblr. So um, yeah, I have that all linked on my website. Awesome. And we will be sure to link to all of those in our show notes. And um, yeah, we're just so thankful we got to hear from someone who knew what they were talking about (laughs) about this because we've learned so much and I'm sure our listeners have too. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me and just bravo to Chris and his entire team. Uh, I just know that this, um, I really hope that he this score gets recognized uh, with the Emmys. I really hope that um, it gets the kind of acknowledgement. It's already getting so much fan acknowledgement, but for me, it's my top favorite TV score of this entire year. Um, And I'm listening to it over and over again and bringing so much joy to everyone. So I'm really happy to have been able to come and talk about it with you. Yes. Thank you so much. I have to say, like, I, my rewatch is going to be so different after having this conversation. Mm-hmm, yeah. And I'm so glad about that. And I'm I really excited. I can't <laughs> wait. I can't wait to listen to your uh, playlist that you've created. I'm like, yeah. I need this in my life because I love to work along to music. So, yay. Ravel <laughs> on there. I'm going to put some of Chris's other work. The top is the Bridgerton cues, but then I'm going to expand into other things and make you an awesome reading playlist. <gasps> I love it. I love it. Kelsey, Ravel is great to canter to. And it's like there's a 15-minute Ravel sure. song and you can just canter and canter and canter. I'm pretty sure I have listened to it Anyhow. because you had it on a playlist somewhere. And then I was like, <laughs> I'm going to copy Zoe's playlist and I'm going to ride to that. And it's really funny because sometimes I will be riding around to music and – by like the first time at horse girls. I, yeah, I, yeah. I work with horses for a living. Um, but I know the first, anytime I'm on a new job, I'll be listening to music on my phone and I don't have headphones in cause I need to be aware. So I just have it right. playing out of my phone and they'll be like, are you listening to classical music? And I'm like, yes, yes, I am. Have you written the classical music? It's the best. Yeah. <laughs> Especially really Aaron is. Copeland. 
Have you ever ridden your horse listening to Aaron Copeland? Uh, maybe, There's but I'm sure things. I'm going to have to look that up. There you go. Yeah, now you're going to make me make you a horse riding playlist well, oh, there was one thing that I wanted to mention. I'm going to close this out, but I just had to say they their last waltz is in like two four or four four time. It's not in three four time, and it drove me crazy. I was like, wait a minute, it's not a waltz. Yeah, there's uh, there's this amazing um, soprano that I follow on Twitter. Um, yeah, kind of. She has this really funny Twitter persona where she um, combines like her knowledge of classical music and opera stuff with just being like really funny and commenting on things. And oh. she enjoyed the show, but she did have a couple of tweets where she addressed that because oh, she good. comes from the world of you know stage direction and having to learn to dance while you're singing and all of that stuff. And so she did point that out. And I was like, huh, you're right. Because I was so wrapped up in the books and the smoldering. Yeah, there was a lot of smoldering. I know. Seriously, I should have just focused on the smolder. But... <laughs> All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening. We're so glad you're here with us and we hope that you join us next episode for another Star Wars fan, uh, a Star Wars cosplayer, but also a historical costumer and cosplayer. Bianca Hernandez Night of Book Hoarding is going to be on with us to talk all about the costumes of that Bridgerton. Amazing. Oh, I'm going to definitely need to listen to that one. I love that whole world, world of cosplay and everything. That's so cool. <laughs> it's so good <laughs> it's so cool so thanks again thank you and may all your ever afters end happily tea and strumpets is part of the frolic podcast network find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts Hi, I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And we're Romance! <laughs> Weekly podcast that looks at the history of romance, desire, tropes, and convoluted orgasm metaphors by talking through the sexiest parts, weirdest parts, and in betweeniest parts of romance novels and the romance novel adjacent. Novels like Awaken My Love by Robin Schoen, Never Sweeter by Charlotte Stein, or Shana by Kathleen Woodowis. It's Shana! Shana, Shana, Shana! And Aisha at Last by Uzman Jaluludin. Join us next Wednesday on your favorite podcast app. And remember, loosen your stays, but never your principles.